Hello and welcome to the first episode of Net Zero Nudge, a new podcast box set series by Energy Voice in association with EUI. The UK government launched its 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution in the heady days of November 2020, and we looked through those plans in the 10-point pod, which serves as a nice forerunner to this uh, net zero nudge. With a 10-point pod, work through those different areas sequentially. Now we're taking the next step. We're looking at how to lead the conversation forwards to nudge behaviour from various angles, consumers, government, industry, to drive that shift to net zero. I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Cox, partner at EY, and Matthew Wright, head of strategy and regulation at National Grid ESO. And in this first episode, we're going to be looking at changing energy consumption patterns, which I think is, is really going to be critical to the entire discussion. Well, there's a temptation to think about innovating our way through the drive to cut emissions. We too often forget about ways in which we can change consumption to consume smarter and, and, and even to consume less. There's a clear long-term imperative to this move with, with the government's 2050 targets. They are legally binding, but there's also a short-term interest. The UK, and, in, and indeed much of the world, is looking at seemingly ever higher energy prices. Every day, it seems there's some new fresh strain on gas supplies, which has triggered a move to curb short-term consumption. The European Union, for instance, I think has called for its members to reduce gas demand by 15% going into winter. And it, and it looks like there's a sort of a broad agreement on that. The UK government has set out plans to cap prices for consumers and industry in a move that will be welcomed going into winter. It seems the need for such a move had become too pressing, with the price increases moving from a niche topic to a major drag on the economy. While the price cap will help, consumers and industry will have to take steps to tackle consumption. Years of low prices have given something of a false sense of security, and those high-priced chickens are now coming home to roost. So the trick's going to be finding a way to combine this short-term move of, of reducing energy consumption, if only to tackle bills apart from anything else, into a longer-term reduction looking at how to offer energy security, affordability and decarbonisation all at the same time. Matthew, I'll start with you. What role can changing consumption have on our lives and indeed the country's future? Great question. I think in the short term, your introduction covered it quite well. I mean, all of us at the moment are so conscious of the incredibly high energy prices and anything that we can do to reduce consumption will save us money at the moment. So all the energy efficiency advice we've maybe heard for years and maybe not done anything about, we we really need to start to do that. And I, and I think from a policy perspective, going forward, energy efficiency is and should be the number one tool. That's just about using less and costing less, and it's a kind of no regrets thing. But in terms of the longer term, indeed even the medium term, there's another aspect to this. Because our energy mix is changing, moving away from fossil fuel sort of baseload plant that, that runs continuously to more flexible and intermittent renewable energy, we need to introduce what we call flexibility into the demand side. So we need to be able to move energy consumption between periods. And this is actually going to be even more pronounced when we all start driving around in, and many people already are driving around in electric vehicles, and more particularly if we heat our homes with electricity, heat pumps, et cetera, in order to avoid significantly bigger peak demands on the system that will drive ever more investment, we need to unlock what we call flexibility on the demand side to smooth that profile. And if we do that, the savings will materialize not only for those people that reduce their consumption, smart charge their EVs when the power is cheaper, 
but the overall level of cost on the total system will be less. The peak demand will be less, and that'll benefit everybody. Sure, sure. Simon, obviously, I mean, Matthew, I think has made, a, made, a, made an interesting point there about, I suppose, sort of flexibility in consumption. How do you see it playing out? I think the opportunity is, as Matthew was saying, to bring in demand-side flexibility to reduce the, the whole system costs for all consumers is an opportunity that we need to grasp. What I've found really interesting over the last few years is how the consumer's role in that is starting to come through as, yes, a necessity, but also actually being demanded by consumers themselves. If we think back over the last uh, few years in the, uh, in the energy supply market, if you go back 10 years, it was all about cost and convenience was was the next kind of most important feature in people's behavioral decisions and purchasing decisions um, when it came to energy. What's been really interesting over the last few years is the rise of most broadly sustainability, but the, the impact on climate change as being an increasing feature in people's decision-making around energy. And I think the, the opportunity that that brings to kind of fuse together the you know people want to play a positive role in making the, the the planet more sustainable in abating the effects of climate change and and that plays into a you know the broader system thinking around flexibility and for me that's you know when when i talk to the people i talk to in the industry that's that's where the opportunity for innovation really lies at all parts of the value chain and from whether we're talking about government intervention and market mechanisms, all the way down to what are the kind of products and services that companies are putting in front of consumers and businesses. There's a real rich land of opportunity that, yes, it's exciting and interesting, but actually it's needed uh, and and we won't be successful uh, if we don't grasp it. There's quite an interesting kind of combination there, isn't there, between the sort of sustainability and flexibility. And I suppose, you know, sort of Matthew's point about sort of renewables really driving the, the, the I suppose, the changing shape of supply. And, and, and I suppose the sort of the counterpoint to that being that sort of question about sustainability, which kind of, they kind of, they kind of tie together in quite, quite a kind of a nice sort of virtuous circle. But so Simon, I'm going to stick with you for a moment. Thinking about the ways in which people can take advantage of this shift, obviously there is there is a kind of a, a drive. People, I think, you know, as you say, are more interested about about cutting emissions. But is there, you know, looking at a point when we're looking at increasingly high prices, does this make that drive more important? I mean, I, I suppose it, it obviously it does to an extent. But do high prices? benefit that drive into, say, I don't know, solar panels on the roof or, uh, or or sort of smart charging for the electric car? I think in the very immediate term, it's clear that what's on the worry list of consumers is all about affordability. And where two or three years ago, we might have spoken about the opportunities to provide certain services that would be more sustainable at a premium might have been considered. I think that is clearly less less obvious now. But as you said just a minute ago, Ed, that this kind of virtuous circle of sustainability, flexibility, and energy efficiency is right there in front of us. There's nothing cheaper than the megawatt you don't use. So I think the opportunity for consumers to adopt some of those kind of actions and behaviours that will reduce their their energy bill today is is there in front of them uh, when it comes to you know insulation and, and and so on and so forth. I think in the more medium term, those kind of interventions that do require a bit of upfront outlay, suddenly the business case starts to look more interesting. 
when you're thinking about the payback period on a kind of solar and storage setup or the electrification of the way you heat your house or whatever it might be, it's certainly true that if we're looking down a period of sustained elevated energy prices, the business case for some of these interventions is going to make more and more sense. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, anecdotally, it does seem, you know, sort of speaking to, uh, to a couple of friends who've been sort of having trouble, sort of, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the dream of having solar panels on the roof is obviously an attractive one, particularly at the moment. But it, it, it does seem that there's a kind of a real sort of uh, a squeeze on those sort of supplies, doesn't it? Matthew, I mean, looking at that sort of challenge, the sort of short term versus medium term, I suppose, which is, you know, looking at that, you know, obviously kind of going into winter, you know, we're, we've all seen those sort of apocalyptic numbers around how domestic prices are going to be. Does that put a new strain on on that sort of longer term planning? I mean, I think, you know, obviously, you know, it'd be great to have a solar panel now to, you know, take some of the edge off. But if prices recede, maybe next year, who knows? I mean, obviously, uh, I'm not a betting man, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to step back from any predictions about uh, gas price forecasts. But in terms of if, that, if, that, if those prices come down, what do you think that impact might have on things like sort of sustainability or flexibility or, or energy efficiency that we've talked about? I think consumers were already exploring this. I mean, the stats that I have, uh, the government does an attitude tracker. You've probably seen it. They publish the results every quarter, I think. And the last one in, in the spring said that 84% of people were, first of all, concerned about climate change. So we're somewhat pushing at an open door in terms of attitudinal kind of aspects of this. And 82% or had already thought about ways to make savings, to, to to look at their own bills. And and of course, bills are only going one way. And as regards to the climate change thing, this was, of course, before we had the recent 40 degree temperatures in the UK. So I think those numbers are only going to go up. So there's a acute interest in how people can start to save money and combined with, you know, how do they how do they sort of do that in a way that is energy efficient and and sort of benefits uh, the planet in the context of climate change? And there are already, I mean, I guess the first thing is that the early adopters here are largely the EV drivers because that's a big charge. That that is a, that is a big consumption of of energy, and they are the early adopters on things like time of use tariffs from their suppliers. Basically, they get to charge their their vehicles overnight when the price is typically lower, when demand is lower, and therefore you know prices tend to be lower. And we're starting to see that that pattern of so-called smart charging emerge. But as we go forward, that will become the norm, and you know we'll see initially more and more consumers opting for time of use tariffs to sort of move their demand patterns around. But ultimately, I think we'll see a sort of a digital solution to this that will will sort of effectively manage demand in people's homes and flatten out the curve over the day and indeed over, over the week. So it, it feels like energy storage is the place to go. Simon, what are your thoughts? Well, no, I was just going to respond to um, some of the really interesting points that Matthew raises there. One kind of nuance on this uh, is the demographic shift. We spend a lot of time kind of working with our clients uh, understanding the the kind of the attitudes and sentiments out there in the country, and one of the notable trends in the, in the in recent kind of research is how the millennials and Gen Zs, which as of 2020 is I think the biggest generation in the world now, largest demographic in the world I should say, they are even more engaged with this concept of of sustainability than the the other demographics, and I think this plays into you know the opportunity for companies who are providing services today new entrants to the to the field there's an opportunity to bring the kind of 
the levels of control and convenience that those generations expect in other everyday services into their energy world. Uh, and to, to Matthew's point, what, what we've seen in terms of adoption of some of the you know, innovations in this space over recent years is where we make it difficult for consumers, they, they don't adopt. Price is always a barrier, but that simplicity of adoption is absolutely vital for kind of mass market breakthrough. And so I think I share Matthew's belief that the destination for some of this stuff is automation and and intelligent services that take away some of the you know the effort of adopting these more sustainable and energy efficient behaviors you know people aren't going to be waking up at one in the morning to go and switch on their tumble dryer that there's going to be a need for these things to evolve and it's unlikely that you you're going to want to have multiple different interfaces to manage this stuff so i i I see a world in which there is some sort of intelligence behind this that plays into the the price signals from the market but ultimately provides the consumer with the kind of standard of life that they were after out of that they know they they don't want to be making compromises on whether their clothes are clean in order to be sustainable but i think there is a Again, back to my other point, I think there's a real opportunity there to kind of meet some of these emerging expectations. Sure, sure, sure. I think, you know, one one, one point, you know, that we, we, you know, maybe is worth looking at is that kind of the role of government, isn't it? And I think, you know, obviously we talked about the sort of the 10 point plan and obviously there was, there was some, something of a drive for things like heat pumps. And I think, you know, we've seen some moves in that direction, but I always get the impression that, that people are always slightly disappointed at the role of you know of, of, of government and the ways in which you know maybe the government could be doing more could be could be helping things like energy efficiency could be doing more and you know sort of heat pumps that sort of thing I mean what do you think is it do we need do we need more carrot do we need, do we need more stick uh, Matthew what are your thoughts I think we need more carrots son potentially more sticks but I think the way the sticks are done is important so there's a stick, although maybe many people don't realize it in the context of the ban on internal combustion engine cars, diesel and petrol cars. They're being phased out. But what the government did was give sufficient notice of that, 2030, for the market to respond. So the adoption of EVs is is increasing every day, every week. And we're, you know, we're pretty much beyond the tipping point there. All of the all of the car manufacturers, the vehicle manufacturers realized that this was an existential threat to their business, that you know, if they didn't start to convert their vehicles to um, EVs, then, then they're pretty much out of business by the turn of the decade. So we've seen enormous investment into EVs, and we're seeing more models launched daily, and we've seen, most importantly, the costs coming down to be comparable to, uh, to diesel and petrol cars. So that was a stick, but it was a stick with a long notice period. There's also been incredibly successful government interventions on the supply side. I mean, the success of offshore wind that has been trumpeted over recent years where we, we saw the auction results are actually a month or two ago, now down at £37, 35 was it? Something like that, a, a megawatt hour for, for offshore wind. I mean, incredibly low costs. But the hard yards of that have been over the last 10, 15 plus years and driven initially by government subsidies on on earlier projects, which were much, much more expensive. But as the classic economies of scale and experience curve effects kick in, the costs have tumbled. And now it's a fantastic success story. So I think government intervention and policy at the right time targeted in the, in the right areas can make a massive difference. What people don't like is sort of, you know, mandatory things that sort of have to be implemented straight away. They have to be done in a way that allows the market to respond, alternatives to be provided, 
at no additional cost to uh, to consumers. And, and and I think we've seen some real successes there. Simon, what are your thoughts? Carrots and sticks. The government is facing a very difficult job in in this. I think it's uh, it's worth recognising, especially in the in the in the current environment. Getting that balance of of carrot and stick is a big challenge. I, I think where I see the opportunity for the government to go further is around kind of creating the environment for standards to improve across the board. I think the ban on IC sales uh, in 2030 is an instructive example of where, with sufficient planning, you know, a long enough time horizon, the supply chain industry can organise itself around that that opportunity. I think it needs to do more of the same across uh, electrification of heat, across building standards. I mean, I, I've I've heard that you can build a new house today that's effectively already obsolete from a kind of achieving net zero point of view. And I think this is recognised, but there's a real need to kind of keep ratcheting up the bar around that and understanding the replacement cycles on some of these technologies, the capital investment required, et cetera, means that you do need to think long-term and being subject to the rather faster political cycles and indeed the energy, the sort of the wholesale price cycles of today, make that a challenge. But I think it's one we need to kind of, as an industry, we need to keep promoting uh, the importance of that. I speak as someone who spent a lot of time working on the smart metering rollout. Uh, and I know that comes in for a lot of brickbats and pushback on the success and the cost of that. But it, it remains for me uh, an absolutely vital enabler of a lot of the flexibility services and, and innovations that Matthew's been speaking of. So it's that kind of long-term pointed point of view on what is required that we need the government to bring and have the kind of backbone to really drive industry around that. Sure, sure. In fact, Matthew, there was a piece of work that you and I worked together on a few months back that highlighted the importance of the technology players in this. And I think getting getting them into the tent around the uh, demand side opportunity in energy could really unlock uh, real opportunity for consumers. At the moment, I fear there remains, and there has been for the last 10 years, a kind of divergence in standards of some of this stuff, which preventing interoperability of systems and devices, et cetera. In the medium to long term, that can't continue. So I think there's a, there's a real need for someone like government potentially to start to kind of use its convening power to address some of that. Yeah, I think there's a real challenge there, actually. And again, I think that sort of area of mandatory standards, if you like, is definitely the the sort of preserve of government. I mean, again, we've actually seen very recently the requirement for all EV charging points to be capable of being smart charged. That's only a very recent development. So any number have been installed previously that, that you can't actually apply that technology to. It's very important that they can be smart charged going forward for the reasons we discussed earlier, so that they can respond flexibly to what's happening on the supply side. And again, this interoperability point is massive. I mean, we, we're having a digital revolution as well as a sort of an energy one, and, and, and they're converging. And, and the digitalization of our sector is going to increase apace. Having interoperable systems, price signals that can be sent and appliances or, or vehicles or whatever it is to respond, that's a, a non-trivial task to get that all figured out. And um, the ESO, the Electricity System Operator, has been doing some work in this area under the banner of something called the virtual energy system. So in a sense, it's the virtual system, the digital system that sits alongside the sort of physical assets. And as Simon says, you know, we, we're actually we've got technology players, uh, the Googles, etc., interested in in this type of thing because they can see 
a role for the digitization of, of energy alongside the sort of traditional asset look. And we, and we do need the technology players involved. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just, just bring a, a short pause in there, chaps, just for a moment, uh, but we'll be back momentarily. In the midst of an industry undergoing fundamental change, EY teams offer deep sector knowledge, highly integrated solutions and a global EY network to help you reshape your business for the future. This time for disruption is also a time of opportunity for organisations to get ahead of change. Decarbonisation, digitalisation, cost pressures and geopolitical uncertainty are just some of the forces transforming the energy and resources industry. EY Energy and Resources teams can help you focus on the structure, services, technologies and capabilities needed to create long-term value and bring you towards the future of energy. Together, we can unlock the opportunities of an uncertain future and build a better working world. Brilliant. I think I think that we we we're left on a on a really interesting question. Like, I suppose that kind of question around sort of infrastructure and and, and sort of demand and, and that sort of interplay between them. So, so maybe 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 Matthew, I'm going to I'm going to come back to you and just about. Do you think that that demand is is driving those sort of infrastructure plans, or, or or do infrastructure plans drive demand? I mean, which way around do you think? What's what's going to be going to be key in that? I mean, that is that is a really good question and a <laughs> and a huge question. <laughs> uh, I mean, traditionally, um, certainly if we're thinking about the resource side, the, so the generation side, so we've built the infrastructure to connect the generation and. We haven't thought, I guess, so much about citing some of that. But at the same time, some of that generation increasingly is not so portable. So what do I mean by that? So offshore wind, really successful. It would be great if it was closer to the demand. So greater, you know, to the to largely the sort of south and east of the country. But uh, the further north and out into the sea you go, it, it gets windier. So the best resources are sort of in the North Sea, up into Scotland, etc. So we're having to build quite a lot of infrastructure to connect that sort of resource. We can do it smarter, though. Uh, and recently, again, the electricity system operator published something called a holistic network design, which looks at both connecting the offshore wind farms, but also thinks quite hard about how we move the power to where it is consumed. So again, traditionally, we've done those two things separately. We've just connected the, the, the wind farm to shore, and then we have what's called transmission constraints. So we have sort of bottlenecks on the transmission system, moving that power around and getting it to sort of where it can be consumed. And now we've integrated that through something called the holistic network design, which really starts to think about how we do those two things together. The other thing that we have published recently is uh, some work on what we call locational marginal pricing, where we do believe there is some opportunity to provide price signals to get generation and demand located in places where the costs to the total system are less. Now, this has not yet been implemented, and indeed, the government uh, has launched a, a review of electricity market arrangements that's considering all kinds of potential reforms to energy markets to make it fit for purpose for the net zero future. But I think we definitely need to get smarter at connecting both the supply and demand side and the infrastructure that sits in the middle to minimize costs to consumers. Sure, sure. 
Simon, what are your thoughts? I mean, you, you, you've mentioned that sort of the way in which, you know, obviously there's a, there's a sort of an interplay between sort of smarter ways of taking taking energy from the grid. And, you know, obviously there, there, are, there, are, there are chances for to improve that. But I mean, what, what are your thoughts about, about what needs to change in order to, to drive that? I mean, is the, is, do you think the infrastructure is ready? Well, Ed, if I can perhaps answer a slightly different question um, <laughs> in some ways, because... I think there's a very complex, technically uh, challenging, but very important debate about the kind of future market mechanisms that, you know, frankly, I'm probably not qualified to talk on hugely. But what I think it does hark back to a little bit is the question before the break around government intervention. And I think one one thing that's uppermost in a lot of people's minds across the industry is the importance of a of what we often call a just transition and sort of maintaining social equity as the whole energy system you know has to transform one thing i think we're all very conscious of is the, is the need that you know we don't leave people behind as we make those changes and i think a lot of that plays into the thinking around the future uh, market mechanisms it, you know, what we don't want and i think there's, there's probably a recognition that in the early days of say the supply market there was a kind of essentially a a subsidy to internet savvy consumers you know if you knew your way around a price comparison website you got access to the the cheap deals and essentially you had digitally less savvy consumers who or or, or in certain circumstances were not able to switch supply for for various different reasons actually subsidizing consumers who were who were more fleet of foot mm. for whatever reason and i and i think that's a um you know an issue that we want to you know we don't want to repeat that that again i think as we as we kind of transform things in the coming years and i think that the the conversations we've been having about infrastructure and and the, and the way the way to pay for those connections etc does play into that not just in in, in prices people pay uh, from an energy supply point of view but from the you know the utility they get around their you know as they live their lives and their and you know um, uh, I, I know some of the challenges they're having with the approval of the Sizewell C nuclear power plant and the you know, some of the infrastructure that that's going to create in East Anglia so. Yeah, I think these are challenging conversations. Government has a hugely important role. Consultation is key, but this overriding ambition to make sure that the the transitions are just one, I think, is really important. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, a lot of the things we've we've discussed. I mean, you know, flexibility, sustainability, energy storage. You know, demand. I know there's a certain group of our listeners who will be crying out, you know, hydrogen solves all these problems. There are some real hydrogen fans out there. And I mean, I wonder what, what your thoughts are about, about hydrogen and its role in the sort of the energy mix. Obviously, you know, we've, we've really just talked about electricity here and and obviously that is, is is good at sort of, you know, meeting immediate demand. But what 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 part do you think hydrogen could or, or maybe should play? Matthew? So I'm a hydrogen fan. <laughs> so I, I count myself uh, amongst the hydrogen fans. Why, why is that? So when we look at the system today, uh, we have one of the most reliable energy systems in the world, and we need to maintain that. But when we look at the mix that's required, even as early as 2035, which the government target is to have a fully decarbonized electricity system by 2035, when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, we're going to have lots of power in this country, probably more than we know what to do with. But what we should probably do with it is store it in some form. And that's one of the uses for hydrogen. One of the things that we need to have a fully decarbonized electricity system in 2035 and then on to net zero in 2050 
is some form of long duration storage. So we have battery storage, good for two to four hours. We have a huge amount of storage that we'll have through EVs in homes, which is why smart charging and ultimately vehicle to grid is going to be important. But we're going to need something else because sometimes the wind doesn't blow for days and we will need to sort of call on a store that isn't fossil fuel, isn't natural gas. That could well be hydrogen. Uh, I think it very well will, you know, will be hydrogen. But there are some there are some hurdles. At the moment, the process of creating hydrogen from electricity called electrolysis is perfectly capable. It's been around for centuries probably, but is not as cost efficient as it needs to be. But my kind of theory on this is I think we've seen what can happen. And I talked earlier about offshore wind, where you start to get serious about something and you really invest at scale. And you start to see economies of scale and experience curve sort of really drive down costs. My view is we should be building at scale hydrogen electrolyzers and starting to see how they respond to those costs and see if we can drive down the cost and get a very, very cost-effective form of energy storage that isn't fossil fuel-based. And that, and that's the promise of hydrogen. And if we can do that, we really can have a system that runs entirely on green energy because we can we can store hydrogen, we can move it around the country, potentially using some of the existing gas infrastructure. And we can use it to recreate electricity, although that round trip efficiency isn't great, but we can do that. And of course, we can look at hydrogen boilers in homes uh, as an alternative to electric heat pumps. And there'll be places in the country where we create these hydrogen hubs where I think that will, again, make, make sense. The barrier is economics, is the cost. But we've seen enough things, probably since the dawn of time, that every time you do something you know, over and over, the cost comes down. And the government policy is, is to invest in, in hydrogen and hydrogen economy, and we're starting to see that. My own view is we need to redouble efforts in that area and really start to drive down the cost and see if it is the panacea, you know, the ultimate uh, a solution to the gap that currently exists in this sort of net zero world. Sure, sure, sure. Simon, I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think, you know, obviously the, 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 there, there is a kind of like a, a promised land that, that Matthew is talking about, this sort of hydrogen and electricity kind of coexisting and sort of supporting each other. What are your what are your thoughts? Are you are you planning on getting a, a hydrogen boiler? <laughs> oh, that's a good question, Ed. Um, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I thought that was a you know I'm not sure I could put it any better than uh, than Matthew did to be honest. A, a great rundown of the of the kind of the need for it. Frankly, I think from a you know perhaps if I could take it from the kind of consumer point of view, the opportunity with hydrogen is it it does especially in the sort of the home space heating you know the home heating point of view it does perhaps offer you know less of an adjustment. In, in some ways to the the kind of the end user experience once you've got to a hydrogen boiler um it's quite similar to the you know the kind of situation you have if you had a, a sort of gas-fired central heating you know without some of the kind of prerequisites and, and conditions you need for heat pumps to be successful so absolutely kind of vital role to play and i think anything that kind of you know almost offers the promise of somehow less disruption to people's way of life is is quite nice i think the the hydrogen boiler you know at the moment obviously it's early days um i think they're quite expensive the the ones that can run sort of dual fuel but it, you know you know we know that they're that all of the manufacturers have that in their pipelines to kind of bring to market models in that space many of them already have early early versions of that 
So no, I, I, I definitely see a huge role for hydrogen. I'd be interested in Matthew's view on the, the kind of blue versus green debate that I, I sometimes see floating around. You know, do, do you, do you, Matthew, do you see kind of blue hydrogen as a, as a kind of option in the, in the slightly nearer term? I mean, I think, I think very probably, and, and um, yeah, blue hydrogen is sort of created effectively from fossil fuels, so steam, methane reforming, et cetera. So it is a form of hydrogen production that exists today, is reasonably efficient, and you know, can probably play a part in the short and medium term. My, my personal view, and reasonable people can disagree about this and no doubt do, <laughs> is that we should be investing in green hydrogen, so, so effectively producing hydrogen directly from electrolysis, you know, using what we will, we will have abundant energy at, at certain times. We'll have 50 gigawatts. That's the government target, 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by by 2030. And that's a quadrupling from today, Matthew? E, 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 more than that, actually. Yeah, there's about 11 gigawatts, 12 gigawatts installed today. We'll have a lot of onshore solar, onshore wind. We'll have a lot of energy when the sun shines and the wind blows. So we need to find a way to sort of store that energy and use that energy. And, and it seems natural to sort of think about electrolysis uh, and creating hydrogen as something that sort of fits within that picture. So yeah, I, I, I think the longer term is green hydrogen. The sort of transition may involve some some blue hydrogen. And I suppose, you know, obviously a, a lot of the debate kind of comes down to, to price, doesn't it? And, and people have historically said that, that blue is cheaper. But, you know, with gas prices where they are today, that, uh, that, 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 that discount is going to be significantly reduced. Um, I suppose just, you know, just kind of coming back to, to, to something that you mentioned earlier, Simon, you know, you, you, we were talking about uh, the sort of the shifting consumption. And I think, you know, some people look at the future, look at a world of, you know, where we're powered by renewables, possibly with, you know, sort of hydrogen kind of complementing it, uh, but, you know, it really sort of moved away from, from fossil fuels. Um, and and and, the, and people, you know, are worried that quality of life will be worse, right? I mean, I think, you know, there, there are kind of concerns around, do, you know, will we be able to, you know, run washing machines? Will we have cars? You know, to, to, to what extent do you think our current energy consumption is, is going to change? I mean, I, I suppose kind of qualitatively. I think, Ed, I mean, uh, danger of repeating myself here, but I don't think we will get mass adoption if we expect people to compromise on quality of life. So I'll tell you the story. I actually got a cab ride back from the station last night, um, just 10 miles. It was in an EV and it was quieter, more comfortable. It, it was it was just a better experience, uh, frankly. And that is why people are adopting EVs so quickly, you know, alongside, you know, incentives, etc. But they are a better proposition for the consumer in, in, in a lot of use cases. I think our, the challenge we need to set for ourselves is as we make this transition to a more sustainable world, to a, a, an energy system which is uh, on the pathway to net zero, we need to provide consumers with uplifts in, in, in quality of life and more convenience, more control. And I'm afraid, you know, where that where that's going to take kind of government intervention to kind of make that happen, whether it be through tax breaks or you know financial incentives of some nature to to spur the the uptake of these things and to spur investment by industry in it, I think that's going to be necessary because I'm sure it was Tony Blair who originally, you know, kind of came to this view that any adjustments to people's lives that saw them sort of their quality of life diminished in order to promote sustainability. We're, we're we're non-starters, mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I just I, I'm of the view that human nature 
is quite a powerful force in that regard. And I also don't think it's I, I also don't think it's that great a challenge. I really think that the you know every graduate that we hire into our business today wants to work on sustainability. That the, the world is moving to a world where people want to address these problems and the the kind of the, the the power of human ingenuity applied to these things will mean we. I don't think we will have to make compromises in that. I agree. I mean, I think Simon makes a great point. I mean, the alternatives have to be at least as good as the things that people are giving up. Why should people compromise? And 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 I don't think they will adopt if 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 it's a sort of a poorer relation. Uh, the car example is a great a great one. Uh, but equally, as regards what we discussed about flexibility, and this is not about people watching their smart meter and saying, quick, rush, put the dishwasher on because the price has just dropped and yes, the wind's come up or whatever it is, the sun's come out. That's not going to happen. It has to be seamless. But I, I think the way this will happen is, you know, people will say, well, you know, as long as, as, long as my car's charged when I want to use it, as long as my house is, you know, warm, warm in the winter and I think increasingly cool in the summer if we get, uh, that, that might be another demand, yeah. uh, air conditioning, but we'll see. And, you know, as, as long as my frozen peas are still frozen, I don't really care uh, if there's some sort of guiding mind, some sort of mother of all algorithms sort of controlling that somewhere. Mm. But if it keeps, you know, my standard of living the same or better, if it keeps the utility of my my appliances and, and, and cars, et cetera, the same or, or better. And most importantly, if it keeps costs down for me because I'm not charging my car at peak and I'm uh, making energy efficiency savings by cycling things on and off, that sounds like a good deal. you know. So, And I think that's the challenge for the market. I think that's the challenge for all of us to sort of make the net zero alternative better than what people have had to date challenge thrown down gauntlet thrown well, down i think to you know to to everybody from appliance manufacturers vehicle manufacturers and and you know en energy and electricity suppliers that that's the important point simon the, the government's taken steps to manage the price rises through a new cap on bills is it enough and i suppose does it also do enough to encourage us to use less energy well ed i think it's a it's a very the government had a very difficult balance to strike right um as you said earlier there, there was a real imperative for them to intervene politically. Um, you know, the the, the forecast of 50% of households falling into fuel poverty and so on were unconscionable, I'm sure, uh, especially as this trust comes into power. Um, what I think now more broadly is that they, you know, having bought some time with this intervention at, you know, obviously significant cost to the, to the country, they need to quickly think through what are the more fundamental adjustments to the wholesale market and other parts of the energy market that need to be done to put us into a more sustainable position going forwards. Um, and I know, you know, speaking to my clients, those conversations with government are, are very much uh, ongoing and quite urgent. But coming to your question about, you know, the incentivization of, of consumers around there and, and, and how we consume energy, um, as we all know, price signals are, you know, the most um, kind of important uh, in, in terms of driving when and how people consume. Um, and clearly, you you probably feel the same as I do. The, the, the pressure almost comes off a little bit as we look into winter. Um, and so I think what's what's true at this point is is probably a few things. One is the, the government needs to continue to make and, and the industry with them, um, 
you know continued um, sort of interventions and uh, motivations to consumers to to consume less, to consider how they're how they're consuming energy um, in in the near term as we think about energy sort of su- supply security, etc. Security of supply, I should say. Um, but I think it's really provides an opportunity for industry. Um, they've had their they've been given a bit of a pass effectively with the with the government price guarantee. Um, so now I think they, it's time it's incumbent on them really to double down in thinking through the kind of um, services, the advice, the products and services they can provide to consumers to help them to reduce energy uh, energy consumption going forwards. You know whether that's thinking through what's the next. Um, story around uh eco and and the and the energy efficiency and insulation piece um when it comes to you know more interesting opportunities around solar panels and storage um those business cases will inevitably look more appealing going forward you know we we hear already about the um uh, you know the the kind of the crunch on solar solar panel providers and and how hard it is to get those installed at the moment and you know i think that that's really where I see the opportunity here, Ed. Fantastic. I think that's a great point on which to end. And I think there are some really interesting points raised there about, about, about you know, the ways in which we can use data around energy efficiency. And 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 obviously a nice positive note to end on. Obviously, the, the, that question about public acceptability. Things have got to keep on getting better. Otherwise, uh, we're all going to struggle, aren't we? Thank you so much, Simon and Matthew. I'm, I'm really, really impressed by the uh, amazing insights that you've shared uh, on this on this consumption question. And to the audience, please let us know what you think to some of the ideas we've raised here. You can email outloud at energyvoice.com. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can also email outloud at energyvoice.com. You may already know that every week the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast series. So if you're not already, please do follow Energy Voice Out Loud in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to get this free essential briefing every Friday. This is the first of the five-part Net Zero Nudge. Next up, we'll be talking about decarbonized energy. So please keep an ear out for that. For today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.